This sermon was recorded online during our season of Shelter in Place in Mountain View, California. This is a quote from a media report from about four years ago. In April 2017, it was marketed as the party of a lifetime. The Fire Music Festival was billed as a two-weekend immersive experience in paradise where festival goers would enjoy top musical acts, party with supermodels, and stay in luxe accommodations in a private island in the Bahamas, once owned by a notorious drug lord. But attendees who paid thousands of dollars to fly to the Caribbean for Firefest were greeted with complete chaos. When they arrived, they found a tent city and half-built structures. As more ticket holders arrived, they discovered there was not enough security, lights, or even food. Live tweets from those that were present on the ground spoke of a pseudo-concert and the co-founders, who I will keep nameless, were, became laughingstocks as word went out over the internet. In the aftermath of the debacle, Firefest was federally investigated and subject to a class action lawsuit. The original promoter was arrested and sentenced to six years in prison for defrauding investors of millions of dollars. Now, that probably doesn't strike you as a particular surprise about how people work sometimes, where they way overpromise and vastly underdeliver. Uh, there's a sort of tragic comic aspect to this particular example, but it is by no means the only example. It is indeed just part and parcel of sort of the human experience. I'm sure we can read about more recent uh, episodes and in the not too distant future, we'll read about others who have sought to say, this is what, this is gonna be a great experience. This is what you are meant to do, you know, meant to be or meant to do. And it's not going to cost you anything other than to just get there. And once you get there, it will all be fantastic. And then the reality, of course, becomes far different. Well, I, I use this be, to point out the, the sharp contrast between kind of the, the human mind that wants to overpromise and underliver and our Lord, who is always and everywhere a truth teller. And if you think about the themes, perhaps, of the readings that were just read, I think the theme that perhaps occurs to me most is, is the opposition that God freely and deliberately talks about. Just think about, you know, in the reading from Ezekiel, he is saying, Ezekiel, I want, first of all, this is chapter two, and he's talking about, he's appointing Ezekiel to his role as prophet. And he is saying to him that I'm sending you to a rebellious people. And he says it three times because he doesn't want to miss the fact that these are, this is not a friendly audience. This is not your parents that are you know, wishing you all the best at your recital. These are people who don't want to hear what you have to say. And you may not even want to say it. This is why he says to Ezekiel, don't be afraid. You, basically, he concludes with this. You just have to say what I'm telling you to say. That's your, your role. But the Lord is straight up about the opposition that he will face. You will be facing a rebellious group. The, you know, these are the children of Israel, but they're not going to want to hear what I am telling you to say to them. We can go to, to the gospel that Cindy read, and Jesus is 
being, he is saying what he has been told, not been told to say, but he knows as, as the Messiah, he is there to present, to say, I'm the fulfillment of Luke 4. That's a different account than what we read. But he is in his hometown and he's presenting the first steps in this call as the savior of not only all Israel, but all the world. And he's saying that, and he's not greeted so much with opposition as with a type of disdain and as a type of like, we know this guy. And whatever he's saying now is nowhere like the kid that we used to know. There's an indifference that he's facing. It's a different kind of opposition, but it is opposition. Then, of course, we come to Paul, and our lectionary has us in 2 Corinthians. And so much about, of 2 Corinthians is Paul giving a defense of his apostolic calling. It's like, I, don't, I know you say I don't look like what I'm supposed to look like. I don't talk like what I'm supposed to talk like. I got issues, you know, um, but I am fulfilling the role that God gave me to fulfill. And so he's facing a kind of opposition. And so I think maybe the Lord wants us to kind of understand today what, you know, as we face opposition in the roles and callings that he's given us, how do these guys navigate it so that we can learn from that? Maybe this isn't necessarily new info, but I pray that it is timely because we are all facing some aspect of it. Now, opposition as it's being uh, sort of defined here, as you can see, the common factor is it's coming from people, people that don't understand, people that don't like, people that disagree, etc. But Paul kind of widens out our understanding of that in that Second Corinthians passage where he says, not only uh, am I being opposed by you guys, but I have my own physical weakness, the thorn in the flesh that he's talking about. So that's hampering my ability to be an apostle, or so I thought. We'll get to that later. But in addition to that, I've got hardships. I've got insults. I've got persecutions. I've got just, you know, today we'd probably call it stuff. I've got stuff that is in front of me that's dogging me that, that I just, that makes living this life for the Lord harder than in times I would like it to be. That's opposition. So in the context, um, you know, these, each of these people have experienced opposition, opposition in what they've been called to do. It's no different from us. We experience it in our own context, in, in relationships with our family and friends, for example, or in our workplace, or in ministry. All these are areas where this can be experienced, and we do experience it. Just stop for a moment right now and think, of those categories, where am I sensing most kind of resistance, most, you know, I, I, I think God wants me to be in this way in a certain posture, a certain response, but I'm not getting the, the I don't know, whatever it is, the encouragement or the mutual uh, connection about it or the support, whatever it is. Keep that in mind as we talk. But when we think about opposition and families and friends, I have had a variety of conversations, some of you here, others in our friend circle, about just this whole time of this of pandemic and of uh, political seasons and all these things. People are having conversations with family and friends that they never expected to have and are not necessarily good ones. They've been hard ones. They've been like, oh, I didn't know you really thought that. And they say, well, I didn't know you thought that. And so there can be kind of attention, a, a certain kind of opposition that, that comes with that. Um, those are just things that can come out of, out of the times that we're in. Some people face opposition on, on, on a daily basis because of the calling that God has given them. I think about friends that Vicki and I have, some of whom, a couple that I can think of, who have adopted children 
and adopted them from hard places. And they felt the Lord calling them to adopt those two kids. But the, by the time they were able to connect and, and God brought those children into their life, then there's the, all the attachment that usually goes on at that early age that is so critical to bonding and affection. They didn't have the benefit of that. And so they're trying to pour love into these children's lives as best they can, as, as, as kind of consistently as they know how, with as much strength as they can get from the Lord and, and other people to encourage them. And still it is hard. That can be an opposition, if you will, circumstantial, part of the hardships that Paul was, was referring to. So I just offer that in the sense of don't restrict the, the uh, understanding of it, but know that whatever we are called to be, who we are called to be, what we are called to do in the name of the Lord and what we've signed up to do is going to be met with resistance. And that's part of God's plan. So I hope that's actually good news. So the second part of this is like, okay, well, how do we respond to this? How does, what do we see in this text that actually helps us? I think there's a few things. I'm going to zero in really on, on Paul's example because he's perhaps the most, uh, he, he speaks about it the most. He says in, in 2 Corinthians, he's describing kind of what he's having to do. He's, we, we know that he, he has that amazing testimony. It's a personal dis- testimony where he's caught up into the third heaven, into paradise. You know, a lot of debates about what that is, but basically it is the place, most commentators think, where we will be with Christ. And he gets to have a glimpse of that. It is so amazing and wonderful that he can't even, he's not permitted to say anything about it, even if he could. But how do you describe heaven? Probably tough to do. So he just has to say, I know a guy who actually got caught up in, in there. And he's not doing it to personally boast, but he's doing it to say, this is the validation of God on my ministry. This is God's idea. This is what he has done for me. But then he goes on to talk about his own thorn in the flesh. As if the Corinthian church opposition wasn't bad enough, he has his own physical ailment, his own malady. Not sure what it was, maybe related to his eyes. There's other epistles where he talks about, I think it's to the Galatians, you would have given me your very eyes if you could. Something that was really tough for him because he prays three times that God would remove that, that sense of completion, just as Peter denied the Lord three times and the Lord asked him the same question more or less three times. There is that sense of really kind of doing business. Like I'm going to ask you once and twice and a third time, Lord, I, you know, kind of a nice way of saying, I'm serious about this. I really want this thorn to be taken away. And God responds. Paul prays. God responds and Paul hears. So he's praying and then he's hearing. He's listening and he hears clearly what the Lord says. And that is, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. The grace that God gives Paul sometimes to put one foot in front of the other in his ministry. To get up off the dirt after being stoned and left for dead. If you read Acts Paul goes from one village to another, and it's not a victory tour. It's getting in there, and it's literally getting beat up, and then it's getting up physically and doing it again. So Acts reads so often like that. And so on top of that, he has this thorn in the flesh. But he hears the Lord say, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And so here's the, 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 the paradox, if you will, of what we're called to do. It, it sort of looks like, opposition 
is preventing us from actually progressing in the life that we think God has for us. It's like, have you, have you ever said, if it wasn't for this, I'd be a lot farther down the road? Or I, I could really achieve, do that thing that I know God's calling me to do. I don't know what Paul would say. If I, if I wasn't getting hit with rocks all the time, I could get through the Asia Minor with a much better pace, with much better health. We, we could cover a lot more territory. But you know if you read Acts that God uses each of those times to build the church. And so this is why grace is made perfect in weakness. Grace is really God's power is, is in our weakness. Opposition, here's the, the, the blessing, here's why we need opposition. It reveals our limitations. It shows us that we are, A, are not all that and don't have all those things that we think we need. Uh, you know, if we only had a little bit more, if I only had a little more time, if I only had a little more resources, if I only had a little more brains, if I only had a little more uh, help, if I only had a little, I could do these things. God says, don't rely on just what you can see. Trust that I am going before you. Trust that I am bringing people to you. Trust that my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. So what's Paul's response to this? Now, he has a whole different view on the things that have come against him. And his view is now it's changed. He says, therefore, now I get it. I can boast more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power can rest on me. If I'm, Paul is essentially saying, if I'm going to do the things that God has called me to do, I know I can't do it myself. I absolutely need him. And honestly, the weaker I am, the more I see him at work and, that, and, and the more glory I can give him. So I think that's a mindset. I certainly need more of that mindset for me. If, if, you, if you're kind of detail-oriented or you are looking at, if you're a project manager, if you're a coder, you know, there's certain, if you're a doctor, there's certain things that really require you to be detail-oriented. Otherwise, things don't go so well. But there, you can translate that, that into family and into relationships and things of that sort. We, if we do that, we will quickly run into opposition, if nothing else, our own fatigue. Um, and we will realize that, Lord, I need your power. And my own limitations are the soil for that power, for the fruit of what you can do in that. So opposition looks like it's preventing progress, but it's actually the way to attain it. Opposition looks like we actually need more strength to overcome it. But in fact, it's really to reveal that we have our weakness and need to turn to God. That is the paradox of opposition that we face. It can apply to family and friend relationships. It can apply to things at work. It can apply to ministry. Just leave it to the Lord and the Holy Spirit to kind of direct your heart to that, you know, after our service time or just as you pray through this in the week ahead. Let me close with this, uh, just what God does through our weakness if we're willing to allow him to do that. We're not freaking out about the opposition that we're facing in whatever form it is, but more bringing it to him and say, Lord, you be glorified. You you, you just show off, show up, do what you're going to do that I can give you glory. And, and you will, if I allow you to do that, if I say that, then I know you'll do more than I can imagine, more than I can see. I just started a book by John Tyson. He's a pastor in New York City. Some of you may have heard of him. His, his new book is called Beautiful Resistance, The Joy of Conviction in a Culture of Compromise. And he opens the book with an illustration. He actually makes a pilgrimage to Finkenwald. Some of you who are Dietrich Bonhoeffer fans, as I am, know that that is where he had his seminary, Northeast Germany, in 1935. Hitler comes to power in 33. 
the church is already under compromise as soon as he happens. By the time 35 rolls around, uh, the Nazis have co-opted the church leadership. They are, they're, take, you know, they're not allowing non-Aryan pastors to be ordained. That's one of the proposals. Another one was to cut out the Old Testament from the scriptures because it was too Jewish. Just a whole host of crazy things. And Bonhoeffer has the conviction that if he doesn't form these pastors and somehow come together so that they can be strengthened to, res- to withstand this, the, the church you know, its survival is really, in, in one sense, at issue. And so he, he, gets, this, he gets this group together, 1935. Uh, he's part of the Confessing Church. He opens up this seminary, and pastors come. They share a common place, kind of like a monastery. They're hearing the Word of God. They're talking about things. They are doing life together. In fact, that book, Life Together, comes out of that experience, as does a part of the cost of discipleship, because it's so, so much is on the line. But then uh, Tyson writes this. He tells, I didn't know this part. The seminary starts in 35. It's closed two years later by the Gestapo. It just has two years uh, in operation. One visitor who'd went there before it was closed uh, was reported saying that Bonhoeffer told him, you have to be stronger than these tormentors that you find everywhere today. But as it got closed just two years later, how much strength could really be achieved? So was Finkenwald stronger than the Nazi tormentors? Tyson writes, such a prophetic stance was almost indeed laughable. Bonhoeffer's seminary was small and its season was short, but it was a prophetic seed of a faithful church. Over time, as Jesus promised, the small seed grew and bore fruit. Today, the Third Reich is a shameful memory. Hitler is in the grave and the German church is repentant. But the fruit of Finkenwald, the community, the vision and the work has gone on to shape a vision of Christian discipleship that has inspired millions. I don't know if these 30 German pastors in 1935 could have any idea of how God would use their weakness to do something of such strength in this whole movement of discipleship. These were key books when I was being formed. and We've used some of those passages even at Holy Trinity. What is true for, for Bonhoeffer is true for each of us, our families, and I pray for Holy Trinity. We just don't know. We need to be faithful. Embrace the opposition, if you will, knowing that God is at work. And that's my prayer for us. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the sermon podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.